Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, it's Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, Dr. Mark Galley may not be a household name, but over the past three years, decisions he made probably affected your household along with everyone else's in the state of California. He's Secretary of Health and Human Services and was a key player in the state's response to COVID-19. This week, California's state of emergency on COVID ended, making this a perfect time to talk with Dr. Galley about managing the pandemic, lessons learned, and his next challenge, Marisa, implementing a new state law to steer people with severe mental health problems into treatment. Never a dull moment for treatment. Dr. Galley. Never a dull <laughs> moment. Uh, we'll talk with him about the care courts law and a lot of other things. But first, um, we had some poll numbers come out, as we do often, uh, from this time from Berkeley IGS. And one of the questions they asked focused on guns and gun mm-hmm. violence. And not a big surprise that you see that partisan split on gun control. Democrats, of course, much more supportive of the idea of more gun control, whereas Republicans really want to support the Second Amendment. But what was kind of interesting is the split on the fear of gun violence, that whether they or someone they know could be the victim of violence, 78 percent of Democrats saying they're worried about that, only 36 percent of, of Republicans. And yeah. you have, I guess part of that is just everything has become partisan these days. You know how you feel about the economy. It's like, who's in the White House? Are they a Republican or they're a Democrat? And I think it's reflected in that. Yeah. I mean, also, interestingly, I always like to look at no party preference voters because they're a litmus for kind of the broader electorate. They actually, if you talk to folks, pollsters and data nerds, they'll say that, you know, no party preference kind of breaks down similarly to Republican, Democrat. So 61 percent of no party preference voters say they're worried about being a victim of gun violence. So you can see why in a state like this, we still have very strong support for gun control laws because, you know, a majority of voters, Democrats and uh, independents. Um, but this is interesting. I think, you know, what somebody like Governor Newsom might point out, which he has before, which is that red counties are actually often more violent than blue ones. Now, of course, we have more crime in big cities because there's more people here. But when you look at it on a per capita basis, you know, Kern Kern County County, out in the Central Valley uh, did have a much higher murder rate uh, Mm. than most of the rest of the state in the past few years. Um, But, you know, yeah, this really, to me, just speaks to how this issue is really about kind of your base philosophical views, um, not about the actual data. I mean, it's a weird one because on on the one hand, you know, 
most of us probably know somebody who has been a victim of gun violence. I certainly do. And yet, I mean, statistically, it's still not a super high probability on an average yeah. day. Well, and you know, we don't really talk about it much, but uh, among the violence that comes from guns is suicides. Right. And especially among most. men, yeah. especially among men. And so it isn't really a partisan issue at all. Uh, moving along to another topic, uh, kind of related to polling in a way, but uh, the Senate race to replace Diane Feinstein when she retires is very much underway. We had some big endorsements come out this week. Of course, there are three main Democrats at this point running uh, all members of Congress, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter from down south and Barbara Lee from Oakland. And uh, Anthony Rendon, the speaker, uh, came out uh, this week in support of Adam Schiff. Not a shock. Uh, he's uh, probably his congressman. I don't know exactly where Anthony Rendon lives, but, he, uh, you know, of course, Schiff represents Burbank. And then uh, the mayor of L.A., Barbara, uh, got Barbara, Barbara Lee, got Karen Bass's endorsement. They mm-hmm. served together in the state legislature. Um, interesting pickup for Barbara Lee. But, you know, you have to say the lion's share of the endorsements really have been scooped up early by Adam Schiff. Yeah. Which, whether of course, that whether that matters is right. I'm As they say, endorsements skeptical. don't vote, people vote. Yeah, and I just think, like, I, I, I feel like there's so many other sort of considerations folks make. I mean, first of all, a lot of people may not actually know who their member of Congress is, honestly. Um, and so it's not as if that's going to be the kind of do or die question. Although it can help, right? It can tell you something, especially when you have two Democrats competing or three or more. Or when one of them is Nancy Pelosi, yes. <laughs> who endorsed Schiff yes. as well. Uh, yeah, that, that one matters. Yeah. Although I was talking to somebody about the fact that I'm not sure San Franciscans are that used to kind of looking to Pelosi for these things because for years she's been the party leader. So she's kind of just gone with like what the DCCC does. Now she gets to have her own voice. She clearly chose her lane with Schiff. Um, but yeah, you know, a long road from here to there. The other thing that is kind of interesting, Scott, are the dominoes that are beginning to fall politically, so to speak, dominoes from, you know, the entrance of... Adam Schiff, Barbara Lee, and Katie Porter, all members of the congressional delegation here. I covered this week the announcement by Latifah Simon, a BART board director, that she will be running for Barbara Lee's seat. And she scooped up some big endorsements. Yeah. Buffy Wicks, Nancy Skinner, Mia Bontas, some of whom have been rumored to maybe be thinking about right. running, and they're they're behind Latifah. And I think it's worth saying that she is being represented by the same firm that represents the governor, the former governor, Jerry Brown, the former attorney general and U.S. senator, Vice President Kamala Harris. Harris. They ran her campaigns before she ran with Joe Biden. Uh, Karen Bass's campaign in L.A. This is a big name firm, and they're pretty good at clearing the field. Yeah, no, they are. And uh, who knows? We'll see if others jump in. Maybe Lauren Taylor, who ran for mayor uh, in Oakland, came up short. He might run. He's been running kind of a shadow mayoralty <laughs> with press releases criticizing the current mayor, Shang Tao. Um, yeah, and then down south, we've got uh, Dave Min, State Senator Dave Min, uh, running for Katie Porter's seat. Harley Ruta, the former congressman, also running switching to run against uh, running in that uh, in that seat for Katie Porter's seat. And then another couple of legislators, uh, Laura Friedman, the assemblywoman, Anthony Portentino, both from L.A., uh, are going to be running for shift seats. So, you know, a lot of moving Musical pieces, a lot of moving pieces. And, uh, you know, it's uh, and let's face it, only one of these people is going to become the U.S. senator. We don't know if a Republican is going to run. Are there going to be two Democrats in the runoff? So, one of them could drop out, you know, and run for re-election to the House. We'll see if that happens. A lot of time between now and next March, Scott. For sure. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be joined by Dr. Mark Galley. He is California's Secretary of Health and Human Services. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. (music) 
up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and today we're excited to have with us California's Secretary of Health and Human Services. He steered the state's response to the COVID pandemic, starting with the stay-at-home order issued by Governor Gavin Newsom three years ago this month, and so many other decisions about testing, masks, vaccine distribution, and a lot more. And with the state's COVID state of emergency ending this week, it's a perfect time to have him join us. So, Dr. Galley, welcome to Political Breakdown. Hey, thank you so, so much for having me. It's a privilege to be with you. How does it feel to have that emergency order lifted? Uh, you know, uh, I've been asked that a few times over the past few days. First off, I, I think it's a moment to reflect on just the incredible work that millions of Californians did to get to this place. No small effort. We all lifted some weight throughout this. Uh, it wasn't easy. But uh, my first thought is, uh, amazing work by a state of so many people to come together. It wasn't always easy to come together, but we came together in many ways. And then the the second emotion is obviously what we did to save lives throughout this last three years and the sadness that uh, I hold and so many others around the lives lost because of COVID, because of um, uh, things that we learned along the way that had we known uh, uh, how this virus acted and behaved, we might have been able to save some of those lives. So it's a mixed emotion for sure. But really, uh, I think overall, just some real uh, sense of achievement as a state for getting through what was a really challenging nearly three years. Well, obviously, a lot of work over the past three years, as you alluded to, and we want to come back to that. But we want to talk a little bit about your life story first. I know you were born and raised in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Can you tell us what your family and childhood was like? I mean, were, was this a path to uh, being a doctor that you thought you would be on when you were a kid? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, immigrant parents, first generation born in Minneapolis, really no extended family, not deep ties uh, uh, to a whole set of, 
you know, familial community. So really created community among neighbors and friends and uh, uh, thankful for my amazing parents who did a good job raising myself and uh, our two siblings to, I think, really care about the world, value the faith and blessings they passed on to us and think about how we uh, serve uh, in different ways, uh, the neighbors that we have the privilege to live in community with. So originally I thought, hey, I'm going to be a teacher, mm. maybe a lawyer, hopeful to do do something there. But uh, medicine really became this avenue for me to think about what today we talk about as social drivers. Mm. Uh, and And this idea that if you wait long enough, almost every stressful condition, whether it's Food insecurity, health problems, violence, safety, homelessness. It ends up in the emergency room and the clinical setting is a terrific way to help address these. And, you know, over the course of my career, really thought about, well, how do you go further upstream on all of that? So mm-hmm. that's that's sort of where it came together and and uh, still to this day, a little surprised. <laughs> <laughs> quite a, quite a journey. Quite a that. journey you've been on. Well, how did you, speaking of journeys, how did your parents end up in Minnesota? Where did they come from? Where were they born? So uh, both <laughs> uh, both immigrants, my dad actually went uh, 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 to college at Cal uh, in the 40s. So uh, married my mom 24 years younger, oh, wow. uh, lived a life all around the world and went back uh, to where my mom was in Egypt, married her and uh, came back. My dad, a uh, super amazing, unusual character, picked Minneapolis literally off the map and settled there, uh, was an engineer. And and my mom lived a total immigrant experience. Uh, she didn't know that you could walk on snow, spoke no English, uh, ironically uh, worked in what I would t- they call a textile sweatshop uh, uh, on hospital scrubs of all things. Mm. Uh, and and so that's how we ended up in the Midwest and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, uh, uh, moving forward. Did she speak Arabic to you guys growing up then? Oh, very. Uh, almost none. My dad was big on assimilate, assimilate yeah. English, go to schools, really connect to the American community. And, you know, that was in the 70s and 80s, right? That was that was the way yep. <laughs> for so many immigrants to to this country. Yeah. yeah. All right. So you come into this uh, this kind of science lane. You're an undergrad uh, at Brown and end up at Harvard Medical School. Um, and I noticed that your undergrad education actually included a degree in biomedical ethics. I'm just wondering, like, why that in addition to biology? Um, because it seems like something that's probably come in handy the last few years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, first philosophy or just how we come into uh, kind of the expectations and standards in our communities and societies has always been interesting to me. I think it has uh, been in part what is the uh, sort of really support or critical thinking that goes into what today we commonly talk about uh, around equity. How do we make sure people, all people, um, aren't just treated equally, but that we recognize that there's conditions that people face usually structural conditions that cause uh, folks to have 
less of an opportunity to experience the full richness of their life and thrive. And we saw that in the pandemic. And I've seen that throughout, you know, either undergrad experiences or med school and certainly in my clinical career. What made you decide to focus on pediatrics? I think you did a residency at UCSF. Um, why pediatrics? Uh, you know, it actually, uh, I nearly w did my training in Boston, where I went to med school. And in Boston, they had uh, a real uh, number of options in what they call med peds, which is both adult medicine and pediatrics. On the West Coast, they really didn't have a proliferation of med, med peds programs. So UCSF, I wanted to come back, not come back, but come to California because throughout all of the imaginations of med school, uh, my brother was down at Stanford doing his medical school training. My sister had moved to Oakland and my parents had left the Midwest to move to Hayward. Oh, wow. So I was set on coming to San Francisco in the Bay Area. And so I chose between adult medicine and pediatrics and said, I know that uh, low income sick adults often have sick kids. And that would be an opportunity to really kind of go further upstream and serve the young people and not just the sticky, often stinkier problems of adults. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we're speaking with Dr. Mark Galley. He's California's Secretary of Health and Human Services, and he's been a key advisor to the governor during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, yeah, your portfolio ends up including everyone <laughs> as HHS Secretary. Um, and, uh, you know, just... So our listeners know, I mean, you did stints in both San Francisco and Los Angeles, uh, worked on a number of issues before the governor tapped you a few years ago. I, I want to take you back to March 2020. And just when for you did you realize kind of the scope and magnitude of this pandemic? Um, you know, we all think back to that week that, that the shutdown occurred in mid-March, but it must have been kind of sneaking up on you and others sooner than that. I mean, absolutely. I remember the drive, first drive that I had into Sacramento right after what some might think of as the winter holiday season in early 2020 and learning about how we were tracking what was happening on Wuhan, much quieter than I think even the press and the public understood and seeing what was occurring there and, and uh, you know, understanding that this was unlikely to spare the U.S. We had seen uh, other things like uh, SARS and MERS, these other, frankly, similar uh, uh, threatening viruses kind of become areas of concern and then not, not turn into the threat that people were worried about. But there was just rumors about how this was spreading in China that made those of us here uh, in the U.S. that were in charge of thinking about this a little bit more concerned. The real, the, the truth is, though, I don't know that anyone saw the three years of challenge as clearly uh, as some might state they did back in March of 2020. Mm. We weren't seeing, uh, you know, even some of the most intelligent, informed people were talking about, you know, this is maybe going to be a couple of years of real challenge. So the ups and downs, um, I think, were part of the learning back then. But I would say 
most mostly we we saw late January, early February that this was going to be something that we had to contend with in a big way. So the governor did issue those stay-at-home orders about three years ago in in March, and that if you, yeah now we we're used to it. We know what happened. We lived through it. We got through it. But it was a dramatic, drastic thing to do. California, I believe, was the first state to do it. What were those conversations like with the governor and others about the trade-offs of such a drastic step? I mean, Nick, I will say um, I have a lot of admiration for the governor's leadership. I think that there's a lot that's hard about these roles that lots of folks don't kind of get a chance to see. Uh, is thoughtfulness and decisiveness around that moment, the conversations that went into uh, that particular decision and so many after it were really formed around this notion. And it was all over those early Chirons, stay home to save lives, emphasis on the save lives piece. So with that leading the way and understanding our lack of understanding of how this was going to spread and who it was going to impact I think he made the decisive decision. I mean, I think so many people want to hear the hemming and hawing, the back and forth, the, you know, these huge trade-off conversations on the one side where it was the potential for so many Californians to lose their lives, lose their family. Uh, he made the decisive decision as he did. And I know people want more than that, but that's sort of how it went down. I wonder, you know, this really uncovered a lot of differences in our society. You hit equity. Um, it also uncovered deeper political differences over how folks think we should approach uh, it, uh, you know, public health emergencies in general. Um, when you think about the health disparities it exposed, I mean, what lessons ha have you learned? What can we bring forward that will help that not happen next time? Well, I think we, we uh, learned uh, in so many ways, and, and I think many of us, and I'll include myself in this group, knew that this was going to have differential impact on different groups. And those groups that traditionally experienced worse health outcomes, worse access to the services that many of us enjoy more easily, that they were going to suffer worse. And we saw it in real ways, whether it was when we were talking about essential workers and the fact that those who had to go into frontline businesses and uh, industries to continue serving during this unknown, really scary period, we saw people get infected and die. We saw the lack of uh, really cultural competent use of communication throughout. And so we learned a great deal about how the only way to really erase some of those inequities is to work closely with communities where we, we talked about trusted messengers. I mean, the press talked about it a lot. We garnered these terms about how to do this work, I think, not just during COVID in a better, smarter, more effective way for those communities often overlooked experiencing this dispar these disparities. But I think today, you know, we talk about lifting the state of emergency. I think one of the things that we don't need a state of emergency to do is to keep equity in the forefront of how we address these issues. And I see that showing up in policymaking and investments 
all the time now. Yeah. So my hope is we're going to continue on that. Yeah. So here we are. Where life is returning to normal. The state of emergency is over. And yet, you know, looking at the at the uh, state's health department website yesterday, if I read this right, the current positivity rate is about six and a half percent, which is really huge. And, you know, not that many people are wearing masks, and yet there are still people who are vulnerable. People are still dying, you know. What do you say to folks who are vulnerable uh, and feel like we're moving on too fast, you know, that we're not, we're not doing it with, with their health and safety in mind? Well, first off, I think we need to call what, what the end of the state of emergency really means. It does not mean moving on. Many of us spend a moment in each of these conversations reminding us that COVID hasn't gone away. It's still there doing what viruses uh, do, which is looking for opportunities to mutate, looking for opportunities to, um, uh, you, you know, infect vulnerable individuals. So that that's still real out there. And we, uh, there's a lot of things that people who, uh, for reasons of age or underlying conditions who are vulnerable can do to keep themselves safe in this day and age, right? Vaccines, masks, making sure that they're testing, watching out the, the places they might be going with folks they don't know. I mean, all of these things are still really important tools that we don't just let go because it's February 28th and some announcement about a state of emergency went away. It's really about these common sense tools that we've highlighted in the Smarter Plan that we continue to invest in being used on a regular basis. Yeah. All right. Well, we want to switch gears in the last five minutes or so we have with you into the next controversial issue you're wading into. Uh, this is the implementation of care courts, uh, a law that the legislature passed that's going to allow first responders, family members and others to essentially ask a court to put people into with severe mental health or addiction problems into treatment. Um, you know, you did a lot of work in L.A. on the ground um, with vulnerable populations in the jail, people who had a lot of chronic problems. What do you see as sort of the biggest challenges, you know, from a county level? We're hearing a lot about resources and we're hearing a lot of pushback from your administration that they have what they need to do. Well, I think just to be clear, these are such hard, challenging issues because they affect real people. And, you know, I heard your 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 reference around um, gun violence and how mm -hmm. everybody may know someone impacted by gun violence. Uh, I think we all know someone, uh, whether we know them well or not, who's experiencing severe behavioral health challenges, often to the point where they can't do what they would like to be doing in their day. They, they, they end up finding care in what I'm going to call downstream systems. Things like the homeless service provision world, uh, uh, hospitals and uh, psychiatric facilities, and sadly, jails and incarceration across our state. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I know counties are working hard to figure out upstream solutions and care court, frankly, gives you the opportunity to prioritize, prioritize individuals who often have to go way downstream to get the support way earlier. And you raise the the work I had the privilege of doing with so many good people in LA, and we saw the impact. When you prioritize things upstream for populations like that focused in care court, you can make transformational changes with the resources we have. When you think about implementing this, there are so many aspects to it. Of course, there are civil liberties questions, there are legal questions, there are treatment questions and housing. 
and I'm just wondering, like, when you think about it, what what concerns you the most? What like what are you you know most uh, you know w- worried about? I guess. Well, I guess the 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 piece I worry about the most is: Are we going to as local uh, and state leaders prioritize the resources that are needed to deliver on the promise of the pathway of the CARE Act, right? These aren't going to, it it requires, and I've often talked about the three components, it requires the treatment on the clinical and the medication side, the support services and the housing to come together. And it's not always the case in every local jurisdiction that the entities responsible for those three distinct parks work together and frankly, have the responsibility to work together. So um, I have a lot of hope that we'll see that transformation. We'll see those partnerships and prioritization come together. But I know it's going to take some work. And uh, uh, my hope is that we deliver that collaboration uh, on time for the individuals as part of Care Corps. Yeah. You know, the other big change coming down the pike this summer in state uh, in the state is that we're closing our lockups for juveniles, uh, the Department of Juvenile Justice. I'm just wondering, since you have worked in and around public health and counties and behavioral health is such a big part of all this, like, what do you see in, in for that specific population as the biggest challenges for counties who are going to be keeping youth at home regardless of what kind of crimes they have been accused of? Well, um, in the in the uh, great uh, different opportunities I've had, I've had uh, clinical practice in uh, L.A. County's uh, probation facilities, both their halls and camps while I was working as a clinician in L.A. So this is an issue that I think is uh, both personally and from a community perspective really important. I think the biggest challenge is how do we turn the investments that for so long have gone into juvenile uh, 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 detention institutions and invest them in community-based solutions. And there are effective evidence-based, community-based programs that I think are wonderful alternatives. It's all gonna be about our ability to scale them to the quantity to support young people staying at home rather than going into the institutions that we're familiar with today. And probably right. finding those workers to do the job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Galley, I mean, that's, yeah. that, that's right. The we workforce are, piece is key. Dr. Galley, we are out of time. Thank you so much for being with us and for all the work you've done in the last three years. It's just extraordinary. Thank you. Hey, my pleasure and uh, really a privilege to be with you. All right, that's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Catherine Monahan. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, and I'm Marisa Lagos. I'm Scott Schaefer. For more politics coverage from KQED, subscribe to the Political Breakdown newsletter at kqed.org slash newsletters. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, 
you'll sleep better at night. Knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.